prepared hearts. Lord, would you, would you wake us up here this morning, help us to see you and all of your kindness and mercy that is on display in the cross of Christ. We thank you that we can come by faith this morning and hear and believe, not because, not because we have it all together, but because you are a good God who longs to speak, longs to be present with his people. So Lord, would you be pre- present with us as we open your scriptures uh, here this morning, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, which Josiah read for us this morning. We're continuing our series on identity. And this morning, uh, in reflection on Father Ben's last sermon in the pulpit as the rector of Christ Church in Winston-Salem last week, um, I want to reflect on the cross of Christ here this morning and how that relates to the knowledge of God. The cross of Christ and the knowledge of God and what this has to do with our identity, who we are as a people. So uh, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, if you will. We'll be in that text here this morning. So a little bit of review and bringing our way into this part of our reading. The self-identifying Corinthians, which we saw very particularly last week, these, these are mostly Greeks and Gentiles. They're identified as Greeks or else Gentiles in our reading this morning. They were obsessed. They were obsessed with wisdom and rhetoric. They loved great rhetors or great public speakers. They loved smart, persuasive men, and this caused division among them. And this is what we looked at a little bit last week. It tore them apart. It tore them apart. It was division, but it was this, this ripping of something that God meant to join together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. There's quarreling among you, we saw last week. There's quarreling among you. Chapter 3 and verse 3. There's jealousy and strife among you. Chapter 4, verse 6. And some of you are puffed up in favor of of one against another. These are, this is filling out the divisions. Chapter 6 and verse 1, you have grievances against one another. So, so this obsession with knowledge, or else associating ourselves with knowledgeable public speakers, it led to tearing apart, to divisions, and they were, they were they were grieving each other over and over again in countless different ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, these divisions were manifest when they came to the Lord's table, the sacrament of the Lord's table, which if you remember back from way earlier in last year, this is the sacrament of unity. It's it's literally intended to bring us together as one, and their divisions were manifest at the Lord's table. And even last week, even last week, we saw that their divisions were manifest in baptism. So the Lord's Supper and baptism are two of the big illustrations, these sacraments of the church. How many, how many of you guys know that we divide over teachers and baptism? We still do, do that kind of thing today, uh, even within assemblies that happens. So above everything else, they were divided because of this knowledge, which they falsely called wisdom. Okay, so this is the world of Greco-Roman society. They were obsessed with wisdom. Who's the smartest? Who's the most persuasive? Who's the most influential? If they, and this, this brings it into our experience, if they just knew the right things, 
if they align themselves with the right pastor or else the right tradition or the right church, even the right doctrine, then they were set. They were good. That was the quarrel. But this wisdom isn't really wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, this kind of knowledge puffs you up. It puffs you up. This kind of wisdom makes the Corinthians chapter 11 verse 16 inclined to be contentious. And so that's where I want to press in. How do we understand knowledge and wisdom? And what does this have to do with our identity? The Corinthian identity crisis begins with a crisis of knowledge or of knowing, of epistemology. How are we supposed to know anything in this world? Is my being a follower of Christ primarily intellectual? This is something that they were wrestling with in that, in that church. Is being a Christian about knowing the right things, understanding the right doctrines, saying the right creed first and foremost or even being identified with the Reformers or the Catholic Church or whatever, Anglicans. Is, is that the main thing? Is that the question? There are many simple and sophisticated defenses of biblical teaching. This, this is a letter filled with deep doctrine, deep theological argument from the Old Testament. Um, apostolic authority is something he addresses. A theology of the body. This is for perhaps the Apostle Paul's most robust defense of what it means to be an embodied person in this letter. He, he goes into the Lord's Supper, which I hinted at earlier, and spiritual gifts, and he even gets to the resurrection at the end of this letter. A lot of big, important theology, a lot of teaching, but Paul begins his letter with an answer to this Gentile knowledge identity crisis, and the answer and it's another one of the Apostle Paul's summaries of the gospel. Here is the answer. Here's the answer to their identity, their knowledge identity crisis, the word of the cross. The gospel, in summary, is the word of the cross. So if you think about how we rehearse the story of Scripture, this would be like us just saying, here's the gospel. Christ has died. Full stop. Right there. Christ has died. Not, we're not quite yet to Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We're stopping. The summary of the gospel, this is what it means to know the Lord. Christ has died. This is the word of the cross from the beginning of his letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, right before our reading this morning. Christ did not send me, the Apostle Paul, he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And what does he say? And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And right after our reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, when I came to you, the Apostle Paul says, I decided to know nothing, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what does the cross have to do with knowledge? That's what we're going to tease out here this morning. So my main point this morning is that the cross... The cross is the shape or else the image of our identity in Christ. The image of the cross or the cross itself is the shape of the Christian life of our identity. And I will largely be following John Stott's masterful work, The Cross of Christ, which I commend to you and I'll send links. I'll be updating my footnotes in the parish notes here this week. Um, let's consider together the cross. At the turn of the second century, Tertullian, 
So this is right around the year 200 A.D. He describes what had become a common practice throughout the world. Throughout the world, followers of Jesus had begun to do something very strange, unheard of, unseen before. They would sign themselves with a cross on their forehead. And not just when they gathered on Sunday for worship, not just in their liturgies. They did it everywhere. So here it's Tertullian. At every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps on couch, on seat, in all, if, I, if he hasn't covered it yet, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. This is right at the very beginning. Hippolytus, just a few years later, he's describing some long-established practices in the church. He's trying to thwart new practices, so he's, he's talking about long-established practices who have been, that have been in uh, practice for generations and generations. The, he, he talks about how the bishop would make the sign of the cross when he's anointing a candidate who's coming for confirmation or to confirm their baptism with the sign of the cross. And he also, Hippolytus says, he also recommends that everyone make the sign in private. And he says, he says that Christians should imitate Christ always by signing your forehead sincerely, for this is the sign of his passion. So this outward gesture to remind us of his passion, he goes on to say, when tempted, Christian, when tempted, always reverently seal your forehead with the sign of the cross. For this sign of the passion is displayed and made manifest against the devil if you make it in faith. If you make it in faith, not in order that you may be seen by men. So already, right here at the beginning of the church, here's this outward practice. And people are tempted to do that just to be seen by others, right? We're familiar with this argument. Just to look righteous before people. This is nothing new. So fast forward in 1,500 years. In the 16th century, many protested this, as we're familiar with. This is where we come out. Um, this is what one Puritan said. Crossing and such like pieces of potpourri. Not potpourri, but potpourri as relating to the Pope, okay, so popery, which the church of God and the apostles' time never knew. So their argument, they didn't do that. They didn't prescribe that in the New Testament, so we shouldn't do that. And so in response to that, Richard Hooker, who's one of the preeminent Reformed Anglican theologians, he acknowledged that this, was, this is what he would call um, matters indifferent, okay? So you don't have to do this. He would say, I, I agree. It's not in Holy Scripture. Nobody's required to do that. Nevertheless, he says that the sign of the cross is not incompatible with Holy Scripture. He says this, making the sign of the cross is for us. It's for us an admonition to glory in the service of Jesus Christ and not to hand down, hand down our heads as men ashamed of Christ, although identifying ourselves with him might procure it might procure us a reproach as we identify ourselves with him. We might feel the reproach, but it will, it, will, it will also inspire verbal abuse from wicked hands and wicked men around us. So this isn't merely 
though, this isn't merely and primarily a matter of liturgical practice or else jewelry that we wear or art that we make or church history. That's not primarily the argument, but it's there at the beginning. The symbol, the sign of the church is the cross. Christians recognized that Jesus, here's, here's the turn to Holy Scripture, that he pointed to the cross throughout his gospel ministry. He pointed to the cross, even, even as the disciples are remembering Jesus pointing them to the cross over and over again, they're recounting their stubbornness and understanding what he is saying. This is one of the great gifts of the gospel accounts. And later, Peter and John and Paul, these writers of the New Testament, will point back to the, Christ, so, to the cross. So Jesus points forward in, in recounting the gospel accounts. The disciples remembered their stubbornness as Jesus was pointing to the cross. And then they did it over and over again in their letters. Let me show you. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Jesus says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He said it very clearly, the apostle uh, Mark says. Okay, so Jesus said this plainly, speaking about the cross, and this is the first of three times when he explicitly does this. And in Mark's gospel, immediately Jesus says, he rebukes Jesus and says, you can't do that. You can't do that, Jesus. And this is where Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. And at least eight other times in the gospel accounts, Jesus refers, on top of these three explicit references, he refers to his coming crucifixion. Hear this from Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. And this is in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I have a baptism, Jesus says, to be baptized with. This is what he's setting his face toward in Luke's gospel. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's pointing to the cross from the very beginning. Or as John Stott says, what, domi what dominated Jesus' mind, what dominated his mind was not the living. It was not the living of his life. It was the giving of his life. From the very beginning, he's pointing to the cross. Peter, reflecting on this in his letter, said it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, and this recalls his reference to the tree in his first apostolic sermon in the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostle John, G Jesus, the Lamb of God, throughout his ministry, was looking forward to the hour, or else the hour of his crucifixion. And later he would write in 1 John that Christ came in the flesh. He came in the flesh, and we hear this every Sunday, he, for he is the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross, the cross, the cross. So making the turn to our reading here this morning. Paul said this. The word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How is this an answer to the knowledge crisis of the Corinthians? At the beginning of this letter, why did the Apostle Paul decide to know nothing except Jesus crucified? 
He declares the necessity and evidence for the resurrection very extensively in the end of this letter. But right here at the beginning, he just says Christ has died. He doesn't go, Christ has died, Christ has risen. Why is the word of the cross the summary here at the beginning? Why is, why is the summary of the gospel simply the cross, full stop? Why do we need this image in our head and our hearts? He gives two reasons. He gives two reasons uh, in our text. And the first one, which I'm going to go through quickly, it's because Jews demand signs. Why, why does he say it's the cross alone? Because Jews demand signs. Different than their Gentile neighbors, which we'll look at, which is you and me, the, the Jews who loved, the, the, the Gentiles loved public speaking and wisdom primarily. The Jewish people, they wanted signs or else they wanted miracles. They wanted God to show up. And do you guys resonate with this? I want God to show up. I ask God to show up in prayer. They wanted God to show up and miraculously deliver his people with signs and wonders like he did. Like he did in the days of old. With the Red Sea parted. With miraculous victory in battle over and over again. Jesus himself, when he came, when he came, he did many miracles. And he told John the Baptist, I'm doing these miracles. It's a sign the Messiah has come. So it's not a false expectation. They desired for God to break in and deliver miraculously. But the Jews demanded signs. They demanded signs. And even when Jesus did these signs over and over again, John says that his own people did not know him. Did not know him. And chief among them were the 12 disciples. This is my, perhaps my favorite theme in all of the gospel accounts. The stubbornness of the disciples. The signs, the miracles did not prove it to them. They wanted Jesus to set up his throne on earth. And the greatest sign of all, the resurrection from the dead. Though they heard the testimony of the women... Though they walked with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they didn't believe. They didn't believe until they touched him, until they stuck their finger in his side, until Jesus opened their eyes miraculously. The Jews demand signs. This is why Paul begins with the cross alone. His proclamation is simply this. It's the cross. Full stop. That's it. Like my Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, I did many miracles among you, but signs don't make you Christians. That's not why you're a follower of Jesus. You cannot give enough proof to make someone a believer. I, that's not how you became a Christian. It was not signs. If you seek a sign, you will stumble. It will become a stumbling block to you. Christ on the cross is the only power you need. You don't need anything else. Many people have said, I would believe if I see a miracle throughout church history. No, no, they won't. If I had been there and seen what they saw with my own eyes, then maybe I would be a follower of Jesus. No, no, you won't. The weakness of God on the cross is stronger than any sign. So this is why he begins with the cross alone. It confounds, it confounds the demand for proof, the demand for deliverance right now. It goes to war against our impatience for God to deliver this demand for a sign. 
This is the upside-down kingdom of the cross. It's the only place to begin. That's the first response. Jews demand a sign. But centrally, in the church in Corinth, there's a second response, and this is related to us Gentiles. Look with me at verse 9, 19 again. I will destroy. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The guy who wins all of the public rhetoric conversations. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who not know everything, but those who believe, who come with faith. For Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's the power for those who are seeking signs, and he's the wisdom for those who are seeking knowledge. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. In other words, you cannot become a Christian by passing a test. You cannot become a Christian by associating yourself with good teachers. You cannot think enough orthodox theology to become a Christian. It doesn't, it doesn't affect that in us. You cannot think your way into the kingdom of God. And here's the gospel. You don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to know it all. Thank the Lord I don't have to preach perfectly or comprehensively or persuasively. Although those things are important, it matters that we care and that we press in. But it's not dependent upon that. And you, Christian, don't have to understand fully or grasp it all comprehensively, nor can we. This is the message of the cross of Christ. And this is a stumbling block. This is a stumbling block to all kinds of pagans. Here's an example. The Quran says that the Jews uttered a monstrous falsehood when they were speaking about the cross, when they declared, we have put to death the Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah. For they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they thought they did. The cross is foolishness. Gandhi rejected the cross. Nietzsche rejected the cross along with many enlightened people. Countless biblical scholars over the last three and four hundred years have rejected the cross. This is what, this is the sticking point. This is the stumbling block. Every time we demand a sign, or we think we know it all, or we think that we're supposed to know it all, whether, whether you think you know it all, and you're prideful, or you're despairing because you don't know it all, we're operating in a paradigm of foolishness. It is the foolishness of God displayed on the cross, Christ crucified, and it makes all of our wisdom, makes all of our wisdom pale in comparison. You guys have to know that I have to go to Blaise Pascal. This is Blaise Pascal in his 842nd Ponce. Our religion is wise and foolish. It's wise, it's wise because it is the most learned religion in all the world. It's smart. And 
most strongly based upon miracles and prophecies. It's confirmed over and over again. It's wise for those reasons, but Pascal says it's foolish. Our religion is foolish because it is not all this which makes people belong to it. It's not knowledge and it's not signs. This is a good, this is a good enough reason for condemning those who do not belong, but not for making those who do belong believe. It's not, it's not enough. What makes them believe is the cross, Pascal says. And so, and so, he goes on to say, St. Paul, who came with wisdom and signs, said that he came with neither wisdom and signs, for he came not to make people smarter, not to make them powerful and to give them all wisdom. He came to convert them, to save them, Pascal says. But those who come only to convince may say they come with wisdom and signs. So he's not interested in convincing us. He wants us to be born again. Christ did not come down from the cross to prove his divinity. This is the wisdom of the cross and its foolishness to the world. Because of that, because he didn't come down from his cross and bring a host of angels and bring about his kingdom immediately, because of that, we can believe in him. We can have faith in him because of that. Thomas Aquinas said that all of his writings are like straw. They're like stuff to be thrown away compared to one glimpse of God on the cross. One glimpse of him in his glory. Miracles, signs are like arguments or wisdom, Peter Crafe says. They do not create faith. Though they can help us. They can, they can refute errors and they can battle against our unbelief. Okay, So they can help us. They're, they're not completely meaningless. The cross is more powerful, Crave says, than any miracle or any argument. And why? Because ultimately what makes us believe is not signs or wisdom, but the power of the cross, simply put. A few weeks ago, I said that it is only the God-man, Jesus Christ, who can reconcile our greatness, the image-bearing greatness of human beings and the wretchedness of humanity that we all have. He's the only one who can reconcile those things in his person. He has taken upon himself the wretchedness of the world as he takes upon human flesh and dies for our sins. He's become fully man to restore us into his image, to, to re-enliven and recreate the greatness, the greatness that is in man. This is what he's coming to do. We are lifted up into Christ, in Christ into heavenly places. So here's, here's what I want to reflect on. How do we get this knowledge, this image of the cross into our souls? What does that mean in practice? John Stott, as if he was reflecting on Blaise Pascal, asked these questions toward the end of his book. Who are we? This is the question we've been asking over and over again. How should we think of ourselves? How should we think of ourselves? Stott says, these are questions to which a satisfactory answer cannot be given without reference to the cross. Without the cross, we can't understand identity questions at all. So how does the cross help us understand both our greatness and our wretchedness? 
The cross protects us from the two extremes of self-hatred and self-glorification, of self-love. When we feel self-hatred, when we feel the weight of our sin, when we're stuck in the cycles of self-loathing and shame, look to the cross. At the cross, we see that Christ has taken our place as a substitute. What does it mean to be a substitute? Well, when you're substituted on a football team, you get off the field and someone takes your place completely. You're not in the game anymore. You're not contributing anymore. They take your place. He has taken our place. He has taken upon himself our sin and our shame. He died in our place, forgiving and healing and redeeming and cleansing us from our wretchedness. So when you're feeling self-hatred, when you're falling off into self-loathing, look to the cross. He has taken that upon himself. But Christ is not only our substitute on the cross, he is our representative. He not only takes our place, he shows us the way of life, the way of flourishing. When we are tempted by the fleeting peace that comes from self-love or else self-improvement or self-definition, the pride of, of feeling affirmed in everything because of our own self, our own strength. Whether we devote ourselves to positive psychology or affirmation psychology or weight loss or exercise plans, when we curve in upon ourself, look to the cross. Stop looking at yourself, Christian. At the cross, we are invited to find worth our value and our worth in Him. He is, he is honored. He honors us. He esteems us in Him because we get to be His representatives in the world. Because we have died with Him and risen with Him, we can now go into the world doing the work He has given us to do. We participate, we join in. So he substitutes for our wretchedness and he invites, to, he invites us to participate in his greatness in the world as we bear his image. And we can only know this by looking at the cross. We see that we are much more valuable as we will go on later to see in the Sermon on the Mount, more valuable than birds, more beautiful than fields of flowers. He cares for us. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, concluding paragraph, this is the very last paragraph of Mere Christianity. I've almost read the whole book in the last month. Here's the last paragraph. I don't think I can go back to it now. This is his conclusion, and I think it summarizes the theology of the cross well. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away, Lewis says. Throw yourself away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a personality. He'll give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that gift, for the sake of his giving you a personality. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. You're not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about yourself altogether. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you look for him. Does that sound strange? Does that sound strange to you? 
the same principle, Lewis says, it holds, you know, for every day matters, everything in life. This is why you cross yourself in every moment of life. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are going to make. You're in your head. You're on yourself all the time. It doesn't work. Even in literature and art, Lewis says, no man who bothers about originality is ever original. They're never original if they're just trying to come up with something original. He says if you simply try to just tell the truth, you find that you say something original by God's grace. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. And here it is. Give up yourself. This is the theology of the cross in summary. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save your life. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. The Apostle Paul says, I die every day. And the death of your whole body in the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. This is the theology of the cross. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you, Lewis says, that has not died will be raised from the dead. It has to die first or else it won't be raised again. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. And in the case of the Corinthians, look for yourself and it will tear you apart. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else will be thrown in. Looking at the cross looking at the cross with the gift of faith and in the power of the Spirit, we get to participate. As This is what, uh, who, who says the great exchange? I think this is Dallas Willard. This is the great exchange. Maybe it's not Dallas Willard. Maybe it's everyone, every, every place. This is the great exchange. We trade our death for his death, and he gives us his life for our Nothing for our death, for our little life. He gives his own life. We trade our selfish ambition for a life of self-sacrifice. We are invited to give up our thirst for power with a thirst for righteousness, as we reflected on the Beatitudes this morning. We come to serve, not to be served. We are blessed when we suffer. We suffer for his name. Instead of chasing after the temporary comforts of this world, we take up our cross, and he gives us his easy yoke. This is the gospel. This is the theology of the cross. The Christian community is a community of the cross, for it has been brought into being by the cross. And the focus of its worship is the lamb once slain, now glorified. So the community of the cross is a community of celebration, a Eucharistic community ceaselessly offering to God through Christ the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving. The Christian life is an unending festival. And the festival that we keep now that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us is a celebration of his sacrifice together with a spiritual feasting upon it. This is the end. 
This is the end of the cross of Christ, John Stott's masterful reflection. Turning away from signs and wisdom, from the demand for God to do something, prove it, and from this demand to have all knowledge and understand everything or else perform, turning away, we, we desperately need the cross of Christ to turn away from self-hatred and self-love. So I invite you this morning, come to the cross. Come to the cross even as we come to this table and live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand? Let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.